Did you know that Parsis in Mumbai instead of being left at the tower of silence after they die are now cremated and why because a cow fell sick in the early 1990s did you know that the smog in delhi is caused by something that farmers in punjab do and that there's no way to stop them did you know that there wasn't one gas tragedy in bhopal but three one of them was seen but two were unseen did you know that many well intentioned government policies hurt the people they're supposed to help Why was demonetization a bad idea? How should GST have been implemented? Why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people? I'm Amit Verma and in my weekly podcast The Seen and the Unseen I take a shot at answering all these questions and many more. I aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action. I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience and constitutional law so that the insights can blow not only my mind but also yours. The Seen and the Unseen releases every Monday. So do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in. You can also subscribe to The Seen and the Unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer. Most of us are very impressed by numbers. Show me a chart and i'll think hey that looks authoritative this person knows what she is talking about in most cases you can say any nonsense you want and put some numbers besides it and boom the common person someone like me who doesn't have a degree in statistics all the time to do his own research will swallow whatever you're saying and sometimes it seems that you can actually prove anything with numbers that's where the old saying comes from if you torture the data hard enough it will confess to anything but numbers do matter it is true that lies can be cloaked in fancy figures but they can also be unmasked using numbers correctly and in a democracy it's a vital task of the citizen to question all the data that a government presents question everything welcome to the seen and the unseen our weekly podcast on economics politics and behavioral science please welcome your host amit varma Welcome to the scene in the unseen. Today's episode deals with how the government uses and misuses data to do what my good friend Vivek call calls optics management. Vivek is my guest on the show today, but before I ask him to elaborate on this, a quick commercial break. If this happens to be the only podcast you listen to, well you need to listen to some more. Check out the ones from IVM Podcast who co-produced this show with me. Go to ivmpodcast.com or download the IVM app. and you'll find a host of great indian podcasts that cover every subject you could think of from the magazine i edit pragati at thinkpragati.com there is the pragati podcast hosted by hamsini hariharan and pavan srinath there is a brilliant hindi podcast holiya bazi hosted by pranay kotasane and saurav chandra and apart from these policy podcasts ivm has shows that cover music films finance sports sci-fi tech and the lgbt community all under one roof or rather all in one app so download the ivm podcast app today vivek call welcome to the scene in the unseen thanks samit uh, for having me over vivek you said you wanted to start by reading out a quote and you wanted me to guess who it was from go right ahead ha so this is basically uh, you know greek philosopher called plato from his book called the republic uh, in which he says 
Our first business is to supervise the production of stories and choose only those we think suitable and reject the rest. We shall persuade mothers and nurses to tell our chosen stories to their children and by means of them to mold their minds and characters rather than their bodies. The greater part of the stories current today we shall have to reject. Are you sure this is Plato and not someone in <laughs> India today? Yes. <laughs> so basically, you know, all the good things have already been written. I mean, it's just that we tend to realize them over and over again. And this is exactly how, uh, you know, governments tend to uh, cherry pick data in order to project a story that they want to project, which, uh, you know, the short phrase for it is optics management. And, uh, you know, there's a lot happening in the country. And if the government, for example, uh, Prime Minister Modi came to power in 2014 with a lot of promises. We'll do this, we'll do that. But ultimately, the story of what's happening with the economy is a very complex one. There are many parts to the economy. There are many kinds of numbers. And a lot of it does come down to presentation. But yes. where is the truth? Is the truth possible? And what can we learn from the sort of data that the government presents? Right. So, uh, I mean, this this question deserves a book. Uh, but the short are you writing a book no, on this? No, not really. I mean, uh, but you know, the the short answer is to sort of uh, look for as much data as possible and uh, then try forming an opinion. And by data, I mean not just government data, but there is a lot of other uh, real time economic indicators uh, which sort of come out right from two wheeler sales to cement sales and so on and so forth, which tell you, which give you. Uh, a broad direction of which, uh, rather a broad idea of which direction the economy is headed in. Also, I don't think it's fair to sort of analyze the economy on one parameter. I mean, you obviously have to look at different uh, things and how the economy is doing on those different things. But as you rightly said, it's like, you know, one of my editors used to say, uh, you think of the headline first. So before you sort of uh, write a piece uh, in journalism, this is a standard uh, operating procedure because, uh, you know, you have 600, 700 words to express yourself. So, uh, so before you write, you have to think of the headline first. So when you're thinking of the headline first, you're already deciding on the slant that you want to take. Right. And when you've already decided on the slant that you want to take, you go looking for data that justifies that uh, slant. That's very insightful because what it sort of indicates is that then your journalism becomes market-driven. So If you think uh, of the headline first, you're thinking huh. of the market first. instead of. So you're not really chasing the truth per se. Hmm. You're chasing the story that you think will get traction from the uh, not not, not really, no. no? That, that would be like, uh, I mean, that is also true, not always. So what I'm basically trying to say is that, you know, everything cannot be expressed in 400, 500, 600 words. That's and right. not by everyone. I mean, there are people who can do that, but everybody can't. The second thing, uh, the problem is that, uh, you know, every piece that is published and irrespective of whether it's published in a magazine or on a digital uh, media or in a newspaper needs a headline. Now, the moment you need a headline, uh, you have to take a slant. You cannot be like the economy is doing well, but it is also not doing well. Right. That is not a, that doesn't work. Right. It's so it's a sort of a problem with the way uh, the media is 
That reminds structure. me of what Harry Truman once said that show me a give me a one-handed economist because yeah. all his economists would say on the one hand this on the other and on, hand on the other hand that I mean that is also true but that that's more at a macro level right. I'm talking about a very you know I mean I'm talking about at a micro level as to what happens because because these days you know whenever I try to be objective what happens is uh, you know the length of the piece goes from 600 to 1200 words and it is very difficult to give a headline and when you can't give a headline i mean when you give a sort of a you know nondescript balanced sort of headline in the you know uh, day and age of clickbait journalism it just doesn't work because people want simple stories they don't everybody want wants stories nobody yeah. likes the idea of uh, but you know as you said on the other hand Yeah, so, yeah yeah exactly so so there is a i mean it's it's i mean there is a truth out there uh, but it is a lot more nuanced than uh, you know you most people think it is so right and nobody really wants to read a headline which says something like um modi's uh, time as prime minister has been both positive and negative and ha, uh, but then which is you know which is actually where it is in the sense that uh, i mean he, like i mean i was writing a piece yesterday on uh, i mean just on the economic side of his performance and uh, i mean given the fact that i criticize him a lot but on the whole he uh, you know his performance on the economic front has been a little you know as a little better than average but then if you look at how uh, governments in the past have done that is typically how most indian governments are because most indian governments are not really bothered about the economy in the way that they should be i'd say that it's uh, his performance has been pretty much par for the course and what you would expect from any government of any party except right. for the two big bang disasters of uh, demonetization and the gst implementation right right, right. which is very so which is what you know i also in most of you know what i wrote was what you say now so uh, but then i mean if you say that it doesn't work i mean it in order to make it work you would have to say uh, modi has failed or you would have to say something like oh he's been you know god's gift to mankind because what has also happened is uh, you know because of uh, the social media and and the way it is uh, the thinking now has become very binary i mean this is something i guess you know people keep discussing on your show so you are either with us or you are against us right. so it's it's very difficult to No, in fact, whenever I'm discussing politics with someone, one question I ask, like if he's against Modi, one question I'll ask is, can you name a few good things he's done or something good about him? And equally, if they are for, say, Kejriwal, I'll ask them that can you name a few bad things that, that he's done, done or that you're against? And typically, you find that no, it's all black and it's all so white and it's tribal. You know what happens is, and and it, I mean, I I briefly went through that phase. It's one is it's easy to sort of uh, write, talk about stuff. after you've already uh, you know thought of the headline first right? right and over a period of time you just get caught on to it in such a way that it becomes uh, difficult to uh, get out of it i mean it's it's like i mean you start believing in the whole thing so, so we're not really discussing journalism in this episode but what you said is fairly interesting and we're both journalists so i'll explore this a bit further till we get back to the subject of the episode uh When you write a story typically when you pick up a story do you already have in your mind broadly what the thrust or the headline is or not always not always okay. in fact what i do these days is i have a working headline which is very like i was to give you a very simple example uh, today i wrote uh, something on uh, uh, basically what has happened is that the cabinet has passed an ordinance which essentially uh, will categorize home buyers as financial creditors in case of uh, you know uh, real estate companies who have defaulted on their loans okay so basically uh, uh, long story short i i just had a working headline 
and then as i wrote uh, you know a headline evolved and and then i gave that headline but that always i mean it it doesn't uh, uh, always happen like that i mean sometimes you are already sure as to uh, what you want like i mean i was writing a piece on uh, punjab national bank yesterday or rather day before yesterday and uh, i was already sure that you know this is a bank which really should not be in the business of banking right because you've written about it yeah. enough and you know all of that anyway i should i should tell uh, listeners that we are recording this on the 24th of may so it's going to be released a little, a little bit later, later but huh? just so to give you context don't get surprised as to why are we talking yeah. about archaic stuff you know well i mean it'll be 10 days old by the time <laughs> no, it's but 10 uh, days is a long time these days on it so yeah that's that's true and i guess uh, it's okay for an opinion writer who's writing an opinion piece to already have a headline in his head because he knows the slant but yeah. if If you're a reporter or if you're writing features, then perhaps it's not always ah, such so a good thing. As you know, one of my ex bosses used to say is, uh, if you're writing a feature story, two is a trend, and <laughs> then you get two people to say what you want them to say, and then you know just to sort of uh, balance it out, you get a third guy to say something which the first two guys haven't said. So I mean, so it's like having said that, yeah, and then yeah. you know, sort of yeah. Well, so I mean it's it's, it's like it's it's the structure yaar I mean I guess I, I, and you know the good part is that as journalism moves from mm, paper to the digital media people who want to sort of uh, get rid of these structural inefficiencies uh, they can do that it's just that uh, the audience also needs to evolve and the audience will evolve if enough people uh, sort of uh, are doing that i mean they're not thinking of the headline first right so head on over to pragati at thinkpragati.com there that advertisement out of the way let's let's sort of move back to uh, the subject for today when it comes to economic journalism you've been writing the most insightful pieces that i've read in the last few years and a lot of your recent ones have examined uh, the government's claims where the government has claimed xyz using a certain amount of data and you've shown why that is cherry picking of data or in some cases right. is the wrong data entirely and you sort of um, uh, uh, you know deconstructed that uh, let's start by talking about what i what you know both of us did an episode on and we agree is the most burning issue of our times which is the jobs crisis right. uh, the government has recently on multiple occasions in fact recently come out and said that hey jobs numbers are good people say that there are uh, you know india's producing 12 million uh, jobs a year and uh, where are the uh, new jobs being uh, like 12 million people are coming into the workforce every year where are the new jobs and blah 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 and uh, the government has handled that by on the one hand arvind panagaria ex head of niti ayog saying that that number is false is 7 and a half million and on the other hand rajiv kumar saying that uh, who's an current head of the niti ayog saying that hey we are producing all these jobs uh has and and you've done two separate stories rebutting these two gentlemen right. so uh, give us some details sure so basically uh you know let's start with the arvind panagaria thing because that's a little more blatant uh so mr panagaria as you said was the vice chairman of the niti ayog till he sort of decided to cut his losses and uh, go back to uh, colombia and by the way he's blocked me on twitter so he's blocked me on twitter as well okay so we which is uh, a badge of honor we should wear with pride <laughs> so actually you know you have all these people say uh, saying on twitter followed by the prime yeah, minister yeah, yeah. we are blocked by we, should, we should say blocked by uh, arvind panagaria so anyway so he had this uh, piece in, uh, in the times of india on the edit page of times of india where he challenged uh, this uh, data point of 1 million indians entering the workforce every year now first it is important uh, every month okay not every year so which means 12 million a year 
so first it is important to understand where this data has come from. So this data is largely, you know, it was there in the 12th five-year plan for one. Uh, there are other researchers who have come up with similar uh, data. It was also a part of uh, this uh, document called uh, some inputs into the draft educational policy or something like that. So there are multiple occasions on which uh, various government documents at various points of time, uh, you know, have said that around a million Indians are entering the workforce every year, uh, every month, sorry. So Mr. Panagaria essentially challenged it by using projections uh, from a report uh, published by uh, the National Population Commission. Now, as per this report, uh, in 2016, uh, the number of Indians over the age of 15 or more uh, was essentially equal to 929 million. Okay. In 2021, the estimate suggests the number of Indians of uh, 15 years or more uh, would be 1003 million. Okay. So, which essentially means that between the period 2026 and 2021, around 74 million people have crossed the age of 15. Okay. So, the moment you uh, cross the age of 15, uh, you become a part of, you can become a part of the workforce. So, if five over a period of five years, 74 million people have been added, uh, one year average would be 15 million, right? Now, not all of these 15 million are looking for a job because some of them sort of continue to study. In case of women, uh, many of them are married off and, you know, are not allowed to work. So, uh, so if you adjust for that, I mean, you adjust for that using something known as the labor force participation rate. And there are two methods to calculate uh, that. And so the labor force participation rate is around, you know, is this, as per one method, it's 50%. As per another method, it's 52.4%. So if you use these two data points, you essentially come to the conclusion that around anywhere between 7.5 to 7.8 million uh, Indians enter the workforce every year. And this is much lower than the 12 million number, which has been bandied around for a long time. Now, the problem was, I mean, it sounds very, you know, logical. The problem was that Mr. Panagaria was using a projection which was made in 2006. Oops. Yeah. So, uh, in 2018. Now, that would have been okay if uh, between 2006 and 2018, no other projections would have been made. But I sort of, uh, you know, got curious because, uh, um, and it's a funny thing that I was in Noida that day and it was late in the night and I got very curious as to, you know, why would anyone in uh, 2018 choose a data point from 2006? So I went looking and I found uh, a more recent projection in a report called Youth in India, which was published in 2017 by the Central Statistics Office. Okay, Which, which is, is part as, of the government itself. Which is as kosher as very solid. it can get. Right. And uh, so they had basically, uh, as per their projections, and I'm, I'm, I'm just reading that out. So in 2011, uh, the number of Indians who were 15 years or more was 838 million. And by 2021, this was expected to go up to 1031 million. So the difference is 193 million. So over a period of 10 years, 193 million Indians will enter the workforce. So which if you sort of... Uh, uh, now, uh, as I said, not all of them um, 
uh, I mean, look for work because some of them continue to study, some are married off. Or But you use the same formula for labor force I participation. I use this exactly, you know, the one, numbers that Mr. Panagaria had used, 50% and 52.4%. Because these uh, rates are uh, from um, a report which was published in 2016. So it's like not something which was, right. you know, 15 years old. And it's fair enough to use the same methodology, yes. but better data to show that the man is wrong. Right. So if if you sort of do the math, so 193 million over a period of 10 years uh, works out to 19.3 million a year, and at 50 percent it works out to around 9.7 million. At uh, 52.4 percent it works out to around 10.11 million. Right. So roughly around 10 10 million. So 10 million, obviously it's it's closer lower, to 12 than to 7.5. Ha, but it's 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 almost. Uh, 33% more than uh, right. 7.5 million. Mm. So, the question again, you know, comes back to the fact that, uh, you know, why would uh, someone like Arvind Panagaria, who was uh, the former head of Niti Aayog, uh, use 2006 data and not 2017 data? Okay? I mean, when you make such an obvious schoolboy error, you know, it's either incompetence or dishonesty. And one doesn't know. I, one doesn't know. We and shouldn't speculate, yes. but and, it, and there's the no other, third explanation. And, and the other thing is, uh, you know... Uh, I mean, I would have been fine if you would have used both the. Yeah. That would also because see these are not you know nobody is like sitting there counting ki you know this year so many Indians entered the workforce. I mean it is an mm. estimate at the end of the day and estimates will vary. So he could have easily sort of used that data and then use this data also to say that, however, you know more recent. Uh, you know projection seems to suggest this, but the problem there would have been he wouldn't have had a headline. Very as well as we sort of talked about, so he was not chasing the truth. He was chasing a narrative. He was chasing and a whatever narrative, data yes. he could get in service think, of the think narrative. Think of the headline first. I yeah. Mean, as But uh, you know, I want to keep you on that piece that you wrote in Panagaria because another very insightful point to me that you mentioned is that, of course, it's a great tragedy that so few of our women come into the workforce. Right. But that changes. Tell us about the conditions under which that changes so and whether it applies to India. Basically, uh, so if you if you look at the uh, labor force participation rate of women, uh, as I said, there are two methods. So as per one method, it's twenty three point seven. As per another method, it's twenty seven point four, which basically means one in four women, uh, you know, are a part of India's labor force. And this number is higher in rural India than in urban India, which is something that people really don't uh, know. I mean, I find it very. Uh, I mean, I I mean, I don't. Would you say there's a greater need for the woman to work? No, Obviously, in, in rural India, you know, women are a very important part of farming. Right. Right. So, but in urban India, I think you know the possible explanation for this is the moment uh, you know the man in the family sort of makes a little more money, he doesn't want uh, yeah. you know the woman to work. So, and all the data, as cliched as it may as sound, and, and all the data from this, I assume, would relate to the formal sector, which is. Uh, no, I mean this is as oh, how it is. All oh, right. Okay. Or I mean it includes agriculture. It includes everything. everything. Sure. Right. Sure. So uh and the funny thing is the labor force participation rate for women has been falling since uh, Nariga was launched and i mean uh, your economists really you know have not been able to come up with an explanation for this i mean whether it's a data error or having said that uh, if you look at the experience in you know countries like china and south korea Uh, which were very close to uh, you know where india was in the 60s and the 70s and even in the 80s i mean uh, china and india were more or less at uh, similar position 
and uh, so as more and more women got educated the labor force participation rate for women uh, really you know went up and it was you know and you pointed out that it's inversely correlation to the fertility rate as the fertility yes. rate comes down the uh, labor force participation rate of women goes, goes up. up so it's so fertility rate comes down uh, when the uh, mortality rate comes down when you know the number Obviously. of children uh, dying before the age of 1 comes down and that comes down when uh, women get educated because right. they know how to read and when mm. you know how to read you're in a better position and to take care of your and more prosperity child. and so on because uh, poorer people tend to have more kids i mean that's just a fact everywhere right so uh, so basically uh, so the experience from other countries seems to suggest that as women earn more uh, they enter the workforce and the uh, participation rate uh, for women can be in the high 60 percent i mean so even if india reaches let's say you know we are at uh, 25% now i mean even if we sort of go to 35 40% uh, you will have more women uh, and that will make a massive difference if you have that many uh, i mean it will see so the thing is it it will obviously if if all of them can find jobs mm. uh, it will make a massive difference uh, to the economy and uh, to the general well being of the economy right. but if they can't So that means the labor force participation numbers you mentioned earlier, which Mr. Panagari had assumed, and you took them fifty point something percent and fifty two point something percent, they should go up over time. As a they should, I mean, there is no reason down. because I mean that is the global experience. Right. It's just that in the last few years, uh, after Nariga was launched, the rate seems to have come down. I mean, I really don't have an explanation for it. Right. But if you look at the global trend, there is no real reason as to why uh, these numbers. Uh, Should not go up, right, right. And these numbers going up, of course, isn't going up. Is of course an awesome sign. Uh, let's move on to the other side of the jobs crisis. Here we had Panagaria saying that no, no, there isn't actually that much demand for jobs, and that's been overstated. And we just discussed how we cherry pick data to make that claim. The other side of it is Rajiv Kumar, who was his replacement at Niti Aayog, uh, making a claim that actually we are producing a hell of a lot of jobs. Right, right. Tell me a bit about that. So one of the good things that has happened is that the Employees Provident Fund organization is now going to regularly publish the addition to the number of EPF subscribers. Okay, and uh, the first, uh, you know, I mean, the data point was recently released, and as per that, uh, between thirty, uh, uh, between September seventeen, two thousand seventeen, and February two thousand eighteen, a period of six months, thirty one point one lakh subscribers were added to the employees provident fund. Now, uh, this uh, data point was immediately used by Rajiv Kumar, who is the current vice chairman of uh, the Niti Aayog. and uh, uh, he claimed on twitter that on a pro rata basis this implies the creation of uh, 62.2 lakh jobs in 2017-18 cassandras should please give up so he basically you know we had data for a period of 6 months september to february he doubled it and you know he came up with uh, you know double the number now there are, there are uh, you know there's a basic problem with this uh, you know with this argument and uh, the basic problem is that you know organizations are supposed to sort of uh, become a part of the epf when the number of employees reaches 20 or more Ah, okay. So the moment you know an organization joins, uh, sort of uh, you know becomes a part of the employees provident fund, it is uh, probably it it has had nineteen employees till then, and then one more is getting added. So you have twenty employees and you become a part of the EPF. Now that does not mean that twenty jobs 
आर बींग क्रिएटेड द डेटा विल रिफ्लेक्ट ट्वेंटी न्यू जॉब्स विच इज सो देर इज नो आई मीन दिस डेटा डज नॉट एडजस्ट फॉर दिस एनॉमली दिस एनॉमली एंड द फनी थिंग इज दैट मिस्टर कुमार सेट द सेम थिंग यू नो टू द फाइनेंशियल एक्सप्रेस Uh, having tweeted what he had okay so i'll just read out uh, what he had told the financial express one has to be careful in estimating addition to jobs what happens is that companies start to contribute to the epfo when their headcount increases from 19 to 20 so all 20 workers come into the epf picture in one go while it is not that all 20 were not there with jobs earlier okay so the point is you know mr kumar is contradicting himself uh, obviously uh, you know he said one thing on twitter and he said entirely another thing on uh, and, and my suspicion would uh, be for the financial express and and my suspicion would be correct me if i'm wrong and maybe we don't know but my suspicion would be that the entirely sensible thing that he said to the financial express would be said long before and now that he's part of the government in a uh, sense no. uh, he is mocking the kasai no not really so let me just i i have it open here you have the date ha uh, it's on april 27 so it's not like uh, oh so he actually okay <laughs> so i mean so obviously the only explanation for this is that uh, you know he probably i mean nobody reads the financial express cognitive so, dissonance huh, yeah so he he said the thing that mm. you know his bosses wanted to hear on twitter uh-huh. and then he said the right thing to the financial yeah, express galti se sach bol diya ab jo bhi hai so yeah so that's the thing the second interesting point here is and uh, this is again you know if if you if you look at all the estimates of how big the formal uh, sector in india is vis-a-vis the informal sector so there are multiple estimates some estimates come, uh, say that the informal sector is uh, 90% of the economy some others say that uh, informal sector is 2/3 of the economy and there are other estimates in between so if the formal sector is creating uh, 62.2 lakh jobs in a year it means the informal sector is creating close to 6 crore jobs in that's his assumption that is bizarre i mean if the informal sector is creating 6 crore jobs in a year then india does not have a jobs crisis right right and then it should again if so many jobs are being created it should be visible in other data points the economy should be booming booming so if you look at the uh, the rate of economic growth it's it's been uh, the slowest in 4 years 1718 in 2017-18 the private consumption growth has been slowest in 5 years in 2017-18 uh if you look at uh, the uh, investment data uh the total value of projects scrapped or dropped in 2017 reached an all time high level uh the drop between 1617 and 1718 was 60% this is as per center for monitoring indian economy uh they offer another data point uh, where they say as far as projects completed are concerned they dropped 34% in value terms so where are these jobs being created i mean ultimately i mean we all in go, the in the gois publicity department we 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 go back to the argument that you know everyone selling pakoras basically yeah so i mean that is the only possible explanation uh you had another in your article you'd mentioned another yeah uh, so i was i was just coming to that uh, this is a slightly uh, complicated point so i mean i'll i'll take it uh, gradually 
Now, as I said, uh, you know, between September 2017 and February 2018, uh, 31.1 lakh subscribers were added to the Employees Provident Fund. Now, if you look at uh, slightly more longish long-term data uh, between uh, March 2017 and April 2018, uh, you realize that only 12 lakh subscribers were added to the EPFO. Right. Right. So you you have uh, so you know between September and February, thirty one point one lakh were added. But between March seventeen and April eighteen, only twelve lakh were added. So, well, so what is happening there? Yeah. So I guess one explanation for this is that people probably lost jobs. Uh, they stopped paying. Uh, uh, you know, the monthly uh, subscriptions to the EPFO. I really don't know. I mean, this is something only the government should be able to explain. But there is a clear anomaly here. So, uh, so obviously, you know, this data has been published for the first time. And I would say that instead of just giving the ad- additions, it is also important to give the total number of subscribers at that point of time. And this total number of subscribers should essentially be people who have paid the last 12 uh, Right. You know, uh, whatever. I mean, the last 12 installments, uh, installments or whatever you might call it. Uh, investments, actually, mm. the, who have essentially contributed to the EPF for the mm. last 12 months. Uh, that would give us, uh, you know, a lot better picture than just giving us, you know, one edition number and then everyone playing around with it. And another event that kind of complicates this, which you mentioned in your article, was the government offering amnesty to uh, firms that. Uh, yes. Hadn't had. Uh, ha, so EPF. that also sort of pushed up the number. I mean, there are people, there are firms who should have been on EPFO and uh, they were not there. But that's a good thing. I mean, there was a yeah. crackdown and. Uh, but then again, that doesn't add to jobs. I mean, the argument isn't whether it's a good or a bad thing, but it's something that would have made the numbers go right. up artificially and uh, it wouldn't have been new jobs, merely new people right, coming right. into the EPF fold. So basically, you know, more people coming into the formal right. economy. So. Yeah, which is overall a good thing, but uh, as far as the data ha, is I mean, concerned, so this it, is, it but what artificially we're talking about inflates is, the is jobs something, data. Yeah, really different. So Exactly. Uh so I want to move on from jobs now onto uh, various other areas of uh, the economy where the government recently has been slightly economical with the truth. But before that, let's take a quick commercial break. It's been another great week on IVM Podcast. And if you're not following us on social media, please do. We're at IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc., etc. On our latest episodes of The Seen and the Unseen, Amit Verma is joined by author and columnist Vivek Kaul to decode how the government uses and misuses data for optics management. On Pulia Bazi, Pranay and Saurav talk to author Snigda Poonam about her new book, Dreamers. On Football Twaddle, we have Azim Banatwala as a guest with Saru, Baru and Kumar discussing the end of the UEFA Champions League. And on Who's Your Mommy, Veda talks about mothers and how they cope with their constant sleep deprivation. As I said, it's been a great week and please try and listen to as many of these shows as you can. And now, on to your show. Welcome back to The Seen and the Unseen. I'm Amit Verma and I'm talking with my good friend Vivek Call, the data detective, uh, as we discuss the... Various shenanigans that the government of India has uh, got up to with data, which is not a trivial subject because to live in a healthy democracy, it's essential that citizens always question what the government tells them. And it's hard to do so because most of us are data illiterate and the government throws so much data at us. But worry not, India is fortunate. We have Vivek call with us. <laughs> Vivek, before the, before the break in the first half of the show, we spoke about the jobs crisis and uh, you um, demystified a lot of the data thrown at us by Mr. Panagaria and Mr. Mr. Kumar, um, what's the next subject you want to tackle? So, you know, we were, uh, there's this um, whole, uh, uh, 
hangama happening around how the government is collecting more taxes after demonetization right right and it's a very funny thing because uh, you know obviously as as the economy grows any government would con- you know uh, collect more taxes so what you n- need to look at are not uh, direct taxes collected in the absolute sense of the term but direct taxes collected as a proportion of the size of the economy right right so the proportion the size of the economy be- is essentially the uh, gross domestic product or the gdp number now uh, so in 2017 18 uh, the government of india Uh, the direct tax collection was 5.94% of the gdp right now this was uh, more than the taxes collected in 2016-17 uh, which were at 5.6% right okay now when uh, before the modi government uh, came to power in 2013-14 the the direct taxes to gdp ratio was 5.62% and the collection over the next 3 years was lower than this number in 17-18 it improved to 5.94% of the gdp which was a jump of around 34 basis points so the moment you deflate the direct taxes number with the, the gdp number you suddenly realize that the jump has not been as huge as claimed as claimed i mean if you look at in absolute terms direct taxes have gone up by around 17 uh, 18% there has also been increase in what the government calls the tax base so this is essentially people who are filing uh, returns but then as you know we've discussed in the past filing returns and paying taxes are two very different things so when you file returns and don't pay taxes the government does not benefit your chartered accountant benefits so even though the tax <laughs> base is going up uh, it is not led uh, to a proportionate increase in um, tax collections so the argument offered here again is that okay you know right now these people are not paying but in the years to come as their income goes up they'll start to pay now the problem with that argument is that in the years to come as uh, their income goes up and as the inflation goes up the minimum exemption limit will also have to go up i mean it's it's but natural that's how you know it's always been uh, the case and it's the right thing to do as well the other thing that people don't talk about is that in 2007-8 and 2008-9 the direct taxes to gdp ratio was 6.3% and 5.93% respectively which is uh, you know one number is uh, greater than the direct taxes collection in the last year and one number is almost similar now what happened back then what had happened back then was that you know the stock market was rallying and obviously the government uh, ended up collecting a lot of tax from the stock market in the form of securities transaction tax and in the form of short term capital gains my contention is that a similar thing could have happened in 2017 18 as well right right i mean the data for uh, you know stt and short term capital gains is not available in public domain mm. so if it was available in public domain we could have sort of figured out as to uh you know how much tax is coming from stt and short term capital gain and then sort of arrived at the you know whether demonetization has had an impact or not uh what has also happened is that and uh, you know refunds have been delayed so if you know the moment you delay refunds your collection the net uh, direct tax number also goes up so once you factor in all these things you realize that uh you know again the it's it's a very strong case of optics management and also besides the refunds being delayed one thing that you mentioned in your piece was that companies were asked to deposit tds early yes that was also that so that was a report in the uh, economic times and yes 
and that also so they were doing these various jogars to kind of get taxes up to bump up the yeah dtc number so yeah and uh, what i'd say is the issue here that you're talking about is whether they were accurate with the claim or not the issue is not necessarily whether direct taxes going up are desirable or not because yeah i mean know, it's going it's, see, it's it, irrelevant it, it, it's, the, yeah in in, a, in the context or this our discussion it's it's completely irrelevant yeah. we're just discussing that okay are they being truthful with whatever their claims are and if they are claiming x did they do any short term jugars like being slow on giving refunds or making companies deposit tds early to inflate the numbers so that the optics management as you put it um, uh, works well yes precisely the point Uh, so this is about direct tax data. Um, you know, another very insightful piece you wrote in Business Standard, if I'm not mistaken, is about uh, uh, another. I don't know whether one would call it dishonesty, but um, the way they manage the optics of yes. the budget, and in particular the subsidies time bomb. Yes. So this is something that, uh, and you cannot just blame uh, the Modi government. It it started with Mr. P. Chidambaram. and uh, so essentially you know you need to understand the fact that the government accounting works on a cash system so which basically means that revenue is accounted for when the money comes in and you know expenditure is accounted for when the money goes out yeah. typically in case uh, when companies account uh, that is based on the accrual system wherein uh, if a sale is made you know it is booked as revenue irrespective of the fact whether uh, you know the customer whoever the thing has been sold to has paid for it or not okay so that is a basic difference so essentially what the governments tend to do is they tend to postpone the payment of subsidies uh, so there are largely three kind of subsidies food fertilizer and petroleum okay. and these are made by these government agencies like the food corporation of india right. and they have to take the money from the government right. for that so basically what happens is so let's say you know the food corporation of india buys rice and uh, wheat primarily from farmers and they pay them an x rate 14 rupees a kg 15 rupees a kg i don't remember the exact number but somewhere along those lines and then they sell those uh, that rice and wheat through the public distribution system at a price of 2 to 3 rupees a kg and then there is also the cost of moving that grain around and so the government has to compensate the food corporation of india for that difference okay right now what it tends to do is that the government does not uh, pay on time so let's say you know some some amount of you know subsidy was due in 2017 18 it wouldn't have been paid in 17 18 it will be paid in 18 19 so the moment they don't pay it in 17 18 they don't have to account for it as an expenditure because simply because it's it's a cash accounting so i'll ask a layman question clarify this if mm. this was a private company the moment that even if they didn't pay that so expenditure that would still be on the books it would still be on the books because it's been uh incurred but in case of the government is no, not on the books not on the books because the government is not incurring the expenditure itself right it there is an agency right which incurs the expenditure so right. if so i'll give you some numbers so as of 7 2017-18 and this is data from the controller and uh, auditor general the total subsidies outstanding were 2 lakh uh, 19774 crore uh, of this fci was owed 2 lakh 4376 crore now what happens is the natural question that one may ask now is that how does fci function if you know uh, such a huge amount of money is not paid to an organization right. i mean how does it continue to function so the fci essentially continues to function because it keeps borrowing 
and banks are happy to lend to fci because it fci is basically the government okay right so uh, typically what happens is that when fci borrows it has to pay interest on that borrowing right so that interest also gets added on to the subsidy burden and listeners should know that all of you and me and vivek are paying this interest right of course i mean because in some form or the other i mean we are paying for it in the form of high petrol and diesel prices mm-hmm. for one so so essentially you know one of an estimate made by uh, the uh, cag suggests that between 2011 and 2016 uh the food corporation of india paid an interest of more than 35000 crore on all the money they had borrowed because uh, the government had not paid them on time wow and the government is not paying them on time so it can do this accounting trick of saying that hey we've kept the fiscal deficit under right. control we are not spending so right. much so so this basically started during the chidambaram era and you know back then i think the number was around 100000 crore and over the last 4 4 years it sort of doubled and reached around 2 lakh 19 20000 crores so yeah and and you described this as a subsidy time bomb uh, yeah, is it going to explode what's going to happen yeah see it'll not i mean it's a time bomb yes but see, the thing with with Or every year they'll kick it down the yeah, road yeah so the government essentially the government fiscal deficit is basically a ponzi scheme right right at you know uh, it it keeps running because the government issues bonds and you know new set of investors keeps coming in so in fact there was a great demand on twitter that i ask you about ponzi schemes yeah so but that is a separate that's a separate episode and episode and, and i haven't point. written on ponzi schemes for a while so i'll have to yeah read up and uh, though he has written come. a book which you must read called india's big government and what is that if not a ponzi scheme yeah so in many ways yes so i guess yeah and that sort of because you know the government at the end of the day is uh, a ponzi scheme so they can continue and i mean so there are other ways i mean you look at the fact that uh, uh the 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 amount of money uh, you know i think 20 21% of the deposits that the banks collect have to compulsorily be invested in government securities wow and then you have uh, the uh, insurance companies they have to sort of compulsorily invest money in government securities so the government in its own way has ensured that you know the demand for uh, the debt that it issues uh, uh continues i mean so you you can i mean the the term that economists uh, uh use for it uh, in the western world is uh, financial repression and in india because we are so used to the idea of financing the government as citizens that we don't even realize it this is another fascinating subject and all the listeners of the show who are fans of vivek call i'd urge you to go to twitter find him at call_vivek and bombard the guy insisting that he write these two books one on how government <laughs> is a ponzi scheme and two on how government um uses data moving on now to general questions sure. you know you're a experienced financial journalist and you have an eye for numbers and you're trained to figure all this stuff out but what I'm is a citizen really trained. to do but you're sort of self taught ha yeah I'm not you're trained, an autodidact baba ha whatever that means yeah you're a, you're an autodidact uh, data detective how does that autodidact sound? data detective ad There's a lot of dirt in there, so it's very um, the it hard. It sounds side. like some, one of those syndromes, you know, which you don't. <laughs> but to, but to get back to my question, what huh. is a citizen? What is a concerned citizen to do to keep a government accountable? Yeah. As far as the truth is concerned, how do you? That's it's it? very tricky, you know. In in the you know daily life, living, you know, making an earning and you know getting to office and coming back, 
it's very difficult so i guess uh, the only thing you can do is to try and read a wide variety of uh, people uh, given i mean uh, and uh, to be uh, you know uh, not trust everything that arrives on whatsapp and you know just follow a few you know people on the social media and try reading them out i mean i don't think there is see unless uh, people sort of uh, go looking for knowledge and try understanding things it's not going to happen and you cannot blame them given the fact that life is difficult there is only so much time there right. are pressures from the family you know there are bosses sitting on the head everyone's not as lucky as uh, you know i am to you know who gets the time and gets paid to do all this so and i i think what i clarify and i'm sure you'll agree with me and as plato's quote in fact pointed out is is that this is something that is embedded in human nature and in the way governments function mm-hmm. so this is not particularly about this specific government uh it, right. this I mean, is we tend just to like the nature of so i'll yeah. give you a very interesting example i mean something that happened uh, today Uh, so ab devilliers uh, retired yesterday a very yeah i mean out of the blue me, yeah. out of the blue mm-hmm. now uh, but that's a different thing so now suddenly you have this whatsapp forward going around which says that you know devilliers was uh, a champion hockey player a champion tennis player a champion rugby player a champion golf player at the school level okay right. now it's it's very difficult to sort of believe that one guy could have been you know good at so many sports right and so i just sort of googled and i realized that this is some a fake news which has been going around for a while now and devilliers has clarified that all this is wrong and he said that the only sport that he played for a year was hockey in his school or college or something like that now uh, so so one guy who had sent it uh, to me and i told him this and uh, his immediate response was ki अरे क्या हुआ कम से कम पढ़ने में तो अच्छा लगता है ना सो इट्स इट्स इंस्पायर रिस्पांस वुड हैव गिवन यू विवेक टू गवर्नमेंट के लाइफ को ब्रेक कर ये तो रहने दे आई फील आई आई फील लाइक यू जस्ट टोल्ड मी सेंटा क्लॉज डजन एग्जिस्ट नो आई नो सो आई मीन इफ यू लुक एट एबी डिविलियर्स आई मीन ही इज डन इनफ ऑन द क्रिकेट फील्ड इटसेल्फ टू बी कैटेगराइज्ड एज अ लेजेंड बट वी आर अ स्टोरी टेलिंग स्पीशीज यस सो 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 पीपल लव दिस यू नो हियर्स दिस गाय सो इनफैक्ट इफ इफ यू रिमेंबर करेक्टली देयर यूज्ड टू बी द सेम सॉर्ट ऑफ स्टोरीज गोइंग अराउंड फॉर जॉन टी रोड्स आल्सो बट जॉन टी रोड्स अपर he was a great uh, uh, hockey player yeah. he was he was uh, he would have easily made it into the uh, south african hockey team as a center forward mm. if he had not chosen to sort of uh, play cricket but cricket was uh, you know uh, paid uh, hockey More. did not huh? no i think hockey in south africa when he used to be around was uh, played at an amateur level so right, right. and thank goodness for that because so many hours yeah. of pleasure so you know you can them. understand one guy being good at two sports right i mean one guy got good at some six seven No, but uh, apparently uh, Bal Narendra, when he was a young lad, was good, excellent at a lot of sports. Now we are getting into tricky territory. <laughs> we I are. Think, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's let's let's. Uh, I could produce a lot of data on that, by the way. But uh, let's end the episode here. Vivek, yeah. thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks. As always, I learned a lot talking pleasure. to you. If you enjoyed listening to this episode go to the page of this episode on either seenunseen.in or thinkpragati.com and there are links to all the articles by Vivek Kaul that I mentioned uh, in there so do check out all those articles also I'd urge you to go to your nearest bookstore offline or online and buy the easy money trilogy by Vivek Kaul uh, the easy money trilogy has recently been released by Harper Collins and it's looking really snazzy in its new design so this is not just a random plug I'm doing it's a great book by a very fine writer you should all read in fact it's your duty as a citizen of this great democracy to read and follow vivek call 
And it's also your duty to read and follow me. So you can find me on Twitter at Amit Verma. A-M-I-T-V-A-R-M-A. Thank you for listening. He bends down to test the warm water for his bath. He comes here to quench his thirst for a hot shower and some podcasts. You can witness how he enjoys having other people talk about cool stuff in his bathroom. Indeed, it helps him with his loneliness. You can find more of his pieces on ivmpodcast.com, your one-stop destination where you can check out the coolest Indian podcasts. Happy listening.